Tonight on PBS News Weekend, a historic global deal to protect marine life on the high seas is reached in dramatic down-to-the-wire negotiations at the United Nations. Then an insurance change for a type of breast reconstruction is leaving patients and doctors concerned about future access. We need more people on board about this. This is very, very important because this is going to change people's body images. And our Hidden History series continues with the story of the first Hispanic woman in space. Good evening, I'm John Yang. Delegates at the United Nations have agreed on a historic international treaty to protect biodiversity in the ocean. It's been years in the making and only made it over the finish line after a marathon 36-hour negotiating session that ended late last night. Even for people who don't live near it, the ocean is central to life on Earth. It covers more than 70% of the Earth's surface, is home to tens of thousands of fish species, provides oxygen for the planet, and provides the livelihood for billions of people. But only 1.2% of the ocean has any legal protection, leaving the high seas lawless and ripe for exploitation. Overfishing threatens biodiversity. Another threat, the ocean's rising temperatures caused in part by climate change. And the man-made scourge of plastic pollution poses an ever-growing problem. Late last month, as the United Nations kicked off a fifth round of negotiations to establish a treaty to protect more of the ocean, the cause gained some star power. We depend on the ocean. You know, even dogs don't poop in their kennel because they know that the kennel provides security and a home for them. We're pooping in our kennel. We're supposed to be so smart. We're destroying things we don't even understand. The outcome is critical to reaching another UN goal, protecting 30% of the ocean by 2030. Over the past two weeks, delegates from 193 countries met to try to hammer out the final details of a treaty. Among the goals, creating a legal framework to establish a network of high sea marine protected areas, creating rules for exploitation of resources, and confronting the issue of overfishing. The ship has reached the shore. Late last night, after 36 straight hours of negotiation at the United Nations, the president of the conference announced the historic agreement. Earlier, I spoke with Liz Karen, who was at the UN for those negotiations, as head of the Pew Charitable Trust efforts to protect ocean life on the high seas. I asked her about the final push to get the deal done. It was truly incredible. Um, the negotiations started uh, even before the official ten, uh, starting time of 10 a.m. on Friday morning uh, and went all through the night into the next morning um, and didn't conclude till almost 10 p.m. the next day. So. Um, you know, it's not unusual for negotiations of this kind um, to go into a little bit of overtime. But this was really uh, a, an incredible situation where I think because of the complexity of the package of issues being dealt with, uh, negotiators really needed that extra time um, to push it over the finish line. Given the complexity, given 
how long this has been in the works uh, and how long these final round of talks were. How much of the significance of this agreement is in the details of the provisions and how much is it the fact that it exists, that countries were able to come to an agreement at all? Given where uh, the situation in the world today, I think that it's historic that we are able to have a multilateral uh, agreement of this scale uh, that covers two, the high seas, which covers two thirds of the world's ocean. Um, it is also an incredibly detailed agreement. It sets out a legal framework for establishing high seas marine protected areas and other area-based management tools. It sets out standards and a consistent process to evaluate environmental impacts of um, new activities in the high seas. Uh, and it also sets out uh, financial uh, benefit sharing for um, derived from marine genetic resources. Um, and, and a very important element is it ensures capacity building uh, and the transfer of marine technology to ensure the equitable and effective implementation of this agreement. What were the final hurdles or some of the toughest hurdles to clear before uh, the agreement was reached? I think two key issues. One is around that financial benefit sharing of the marine genetic resources. It really is uh, an unprecedented um, provision um, and basically ensures that benefits that are derived from the global commons um, are shared uh, even by uh, shared globally. So what that means is that um, developing countries can also benefit um, from them and that those benefits will be in turn used for uh, the conservation and sustainable use of the marine environment. So it sounds like it's some of the same splits that we've seen in climate change talks to, between uh, the rich industrial nations and the poor nations who feel that they're they're being asked to pay for what the rich industrial nations have created, but now they're they're looking to get the benefits. Is that right? Um, that's true. Yes, I think financial benefit sharing um, is an important issue. Um, it really is an, an issue of equity and allowing for the effective implementation of the agreement. Um, the agreement will, as I mentioned, set out uh, a process for the establishment of large-scale marine protected areas in the high seas. Um, and that is really important to protect uh, areas that are going to be key for biodiversity, especially in a changing climate. Now, this still has to be ratified by many of the, the participatory nations. Is that right? It does. Actually, what um, occurred last night is that the president of the conference um, uh, finalized the text uh, that will then be going for technical review uh, and translation into all six UN official languages, uh, which time countries will come back uh, and officially adopt it uh, in the near future. And what's next? I mean, I know that the UN would like to have rules governing 30% of the oceans by 2030. Does this help that? Absolutely. Um, the high seas make up two thirds of the world's oceans. Um, it's over half of the surface area um, of the planet. Um, and they play a very uh, important role in ensuring uh, the implementation of the 30 by 30 target. Actually, without this treaty, it can be very hard to meet that target. Liz Karen of the Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. President Biden went to Selma, Alabama to mark the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. That's when hundreds of protesters were violently attacked by police during a voting rights march. Today, the president used the occasion to highlight the Democrats' push to update the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote 
the right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. President Biden has pushed for two voting rights bills while in office, including one name for the late Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, who was badly beaten at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan ended speculation today, saying he will not run for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Hogan's a moderate Republican who served two terms in heavily Democratic Maryland. He's also a longtime and vocal critic of Donald Trump. Hogan says he wants to avoid a crowded Republican field that could help the former president win the nomination. In Bangladesh, a Rohingya refugee camp erupted in flames today. UN and local officials said no one was killed, but that thousands are homeless. More than a million Muslim Rohingya refugees have fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh over the past several decades to escape persecution. And a trailblazing advocate for disability rights has died. Judy Human's lifelong activism fought discrimination and prejudice against people with disabilities. Her work led to major legislation, including the Americans with Disabilities Act. She was featured in the 2020 prize-winning documentary, Crip Camp, and was once a special advisor to President Barack Obama on international disability rights. In 2021, she spoke to the NewsHour about her work. I think having a disability really has allowed me to do and get in touch with so many things and opportunities that otherwise would not have happened. People look at us as the label of our disability. And it is a part of who we are, but it is not who we are. Judy Human was 75 years old. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, fears that an insurance change will limit access to a type of breast reconstruction surgery and the story of NASA's first Hispanic female astronaut. This is PBS News Weekend from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. Health insurance companies are changing the way they reimburse doctors for performing a complicated type of breast reconstruction surgery. Doctors and patients fear the changes will make the procedure inaccessible to all but the wealthiest. Ali Rogan's report is part of our ongoing series, Unequal Treatment, looking at inequities in the health care for women. The surgery is known as deep flap reconstruction. It uses a person's own blood vessels, fat, and skin to reconstruct the breast. Older, less complex reconstruction methods use abdominal muscles, but they often lead to complications like hernias and muscle weakness. Since 2006, doctors have billed insurance companies for deep flap reconstruction using a unique four-digit code. But now that code is sunsetting over the next two years. Instead, deep flap surgeries will be billed with a different code that also includes those older, less complex procedures, which are also cheaper to perform. Doctors and patients worry that this will lead to insurance companies only reimbursing the value of the older, less complex procedures, and that doctors might not be able to perform deep flap surgery unless patients pay out of pocket. We spoke to some women who have received or are hoping to receive this surgery. I'm Diane Hiditsian, and I'm 68 years old. I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I had three different lumps. My name is Kate Getz, and I am 30 years old. 
I was diagnosed in January of 2023 with breast cancer. My name is Leticia Whedon. I'm 50 years old. I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer on March the 11th of 2020. I had to do like 16 rounds of chemo. My name is Jenny Osier and I am 46 years old. I had a prophylactic mastectomy due to a genetic mutation and family history. I had originally planned to go with implants, but my body rejected the tissue expander. So deep is my only option now for reconstruction. My name is Jessica Hezekiah. I am 37 years old. My surgeon recommended the deep flap over having an implant because of radiation. Having 33 treatments probably would not support the implant. My name is White Chu Finch and I'm 65 years old. It just looked like natural breast. So it makes it easier for you to move forward. I'm just amazed how good of a job that my breast, you, you cannot really tell I had reconstruction surgery. I was extremely happy with the results. I just felt whole again. Going through chemo and going through radiation, you don't look at yourself. You, you, you're, a, you're a bystander. You don't know that person because you get put through chemo, radiation, you've become a number in a clinic. But to have your surgeon make subtle changes and have your insurance cover that for you, now I look at myself and um, I'm who I am before I had all my treatments done. I see taking away the insurance code for this particular kind of surgery as an access issue. If we don't win our fight to get this reversed, it's going to end up that the deep flap and other flap surgeries are just not available to uh, underserved women. We need more people on board about this. This is very, very important because this is going to change people's body images. It is 2023. We have made surgical advances. We are doing better in healthcare, you know, than we ever have been. And women should be seeing the benefits of that. Joining me now is Dr. Elizabeth Potter. She is a plastic surgeon who specializes in breast reconstruction and is a co-founder of the Community Breast Reconstruction Alliance, an advocacy group dedicated to preserving access to deep flap reconstruction. And a note, some of the women we just heard from are her patients. Dr. Potter, thank you so much for joining us. You are one of a relatively small handful of doctors who perform this type of procedure. And to give people a sense of where deep flap surgery fits into the broader breast reconstruction landscape, deep flap reconstruction constituted 17% of uh, reconstructive surgeries in 2020. Can you explain what goes into this surgery? Deep flap surgery is really the culmination of many years of surgical refinement and a technique that um, we as reconstructive surgeons um, use to transfer a woman's own tissue to her chest to create a natural breast. Um, during a deep flap surgery, I uh, remove skin and fat and blood vessels, no muscle, from the abdomen area. It's similar to the area that might be removed during a tummy tuck procedure. But instead of discarding that, we are able to carefully connect blood vessels in the chest so that that breast is then living on the chest. We can then mold that into the shape that's most natural for the patient. And then the patient moves forward with a breast that is there for their lifetime, very different from an implant. And why would somebody choose this surgery over a breast implant? You know, patient choice is critical here. So someone might just prefer to not have a foreign body. There are a lot of issues that have come up around implant safety over the last several years. 
the more we know, the more patients are informed about risks regarding implants. Um, there's cancers associated with implants and other complications. There's also the fact that implants are not lifetime devices and have to be maintained and potentially replaced several times over a patient's lifetime. Importantly, though, there is a, a real clinical reason why many women need to have natural tissue reconstruction, um, and that's radiation. So radiation is an important part of the treatment for breast cancer. And for women who have to have radiation, an implant is a less safe option. So for women with a more advanced cancer, with um, a younger age of diagnosis or a more aggressive type um, who might need to have radiation, this is really the gold standard of reconstruction. Doctor, access to this kind of surgery is also already very limited. Um, lots of insurance plans don't cover it. So how would these coding changes affect the uh, access that already exists? So actually under the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act um, of 1998, access to reconstruction is, is really, should be guaranteed, at least coverages. Although it's difficult to talk about money and cancer, um, and especially to talk about payments for physicians, this is about patients. If we decrease the payment to surgeons, then quietly those procedures go away. And the woman who finds herself needing to find a surgeon or a procedure will find that it doesn't exist in her community. And stakeholders like insurance companies and the federal government, they say that this change was always supposed to happen, that the unique code that previously was used for the surgery was always meant to be temporary, and that this change means uh, that it's just a more mainstream surgery and can be identified using one of these existing codes. How do you respond to that? I think that that's um, a really important point to make. This is not the time to be taking this code away. Patient outcomes weren't considered in removal of this code, and despite the fact that insurance companies could plan to change codes over time, we weren't allowed to have a discussion about patient impact and the implementation of this change. So absolutely, can we work together to, to work over time if codes need to be changed or addressed? Yes, but a drastic change in coverage, a drastic change in access is what's happening now, and, and that's not okay. So who has the power to change this? The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare have the ability to restore these codes. Um, and they, they honestly have the power to do that um, pretty quickly. We're seeing right now that patients are being asked to pay cash for these surgeries and facing decreased access in their communities. And Dr. Potter, there's a much broader conversation have, uh, being had right now about women's health access, who gets to make these decisions. Is this surgery and the changes to the way it's dealt with administratively, is that part of that larger conversation? Absolutely it is. This effort really highlights so many problems that we're facing in healthcare. Right now we need for women to have access to care that is best for them from the patient perspective. To me, that's the most important thing that we're seeing. We need to pivot away from just the dollars and cents of insurance companies and surgeons. And we need to look at patient outcomes and what patients need. Dr. Elizabeth Potter, a breast reconstruction specialist and the co-founder of the Community Breast Reconstruction Alliance, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Allie. We asked the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services about the change. Officials said phasing in the new code allows more than two years of, for providers and payers to adjust and that it will give doctors and insurers 
ample time to consult with the American Medical Association, which administers the code. March is Women's History Month, so over the next few weeks, we're highlighting stories of women whose accomplishments have often not gotten widespread recognition. Hello, Ellen. Hello there. I'm up here uh, taking some pictures to support the uh, Atlas experiments. Ellen Ochoa was the first Hispanic woman in space. She logged nearly 1,000 hours in space over the course of four missions between 1999 and 2002. Astronaut Ellen Ochoa is maneuvering the robotic arm uh, into a position uh, where it will be for the start of the spacewalk. An engineer, she directed her fellow astronauts on spacewalks from the International Space Station. Okay, are we ready to open the hatch, Julie? Yes, ma'am. Ochoa went on to become the first Hispanic person to be head of the Johnson Space Center. This is a, a really it's exciting and important mission for us. Uh, we will, in the future, be putting our astronauts on board and uh, we're testing some of the highest risks. Today, she's an advocate for STEM education and has written a bilingual children's book, We Are All Scientists. Now online, an Instagram story on Americans living with diabetes and the price of insulin. You can find this and other stories on our Instagram at Instagram.com NewsHour. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Sunday. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. Have a good week.